This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. In the so-called war on truth being waged by many politicians over refugee and asylum policies, accurate, evidence-based information is a critical defence, according to Professor Karen Phelps, former independent federal MP for Wentworth and a prominent doctor, businesswoman, author and media commentator. Professor Phelps was speaking at the launch of a new book by Caldor Centre Director Professor Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong, entitled Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs, a frank, up-to-date guide by experts, which brings facts to bear on this highly politicised debate. Now, just yesterday I was in Canberra and I heard Australia's 27th Governor-General being sworn in and then giving a speech. And in that speech at the reception afterwards, he said, Australians are good people, well-intentioned people. And I ran that through my internal logic filter and I thought to myself, well, that's absolutely how we like to think of ourselves as Australians. But it's a big generalisation. Now, just today, I was at Sydney Town Hall for Homeless Connect, an annual event where teams of volunteers help people who are homeless or who are at risk of homelessness and connect them with services to help them find housing. They'll give them a haircut while they're there. They'll have an eye check, an oral health check, and they'll get a photo taken for ID. And it, it was just buzzing with goodwill. And in my role as a city councillor, and recently, as you heard, in my uh, all-too-brief role as a federal member of parliament, uh, I was was really privileged to see the number of community groups and, and people who put themselves out and spent time and energy and passion and commitment to volunteer for a range of exceptional community work, things like surf clubs, uh, things like bushfire brigades, volunteer first aid officers, and voluntary support for people in our community who are seeking asylum. And just last night I spoke to a crowd at the ANU, a crowd of people who are clearly distressed by the plight of people seeking asylum, not only here in Australia, but specifically on Manus Island and Nauru. And they were there wanting to hear about the Medivac legislation and how they could defend that legislation. Good people, well-intentioned people. Now the exception to this assertion by the Governor-General can be best illustrated, I think, by Australia's policy of indefinite offshore detention and our official attitude to refugees and people seeking asylum. The indefinite confinement of still hundreds of people on Manus Island and Nauru is a source of national shame. The first-hand reports that I've heard from doctors and nurses and social workers and others who visited or worked on Manus Island and Nauru left me in absolutely no doubt of the humanitarian crisis that we have created. And towards the end of last year, when I found myself in the unexpected situation of running a by-election campaign in Wentworth, and then being on a crossbench, and for a time having the balance of power, I was in a situation of needing to prioritise what we could achieve realistically in terms of legislation. Consulting with experts and with advocates, we set goals. 
and the negotiations began. And it became very clear to me from my discussions with these people who had been very much involved with Manus Island and Nauru that this was the highest priority, that we needed to triage this particular issue and we needed to find a way through. We needed to find a way that we could break the impasse that we'd seen for pretty much two decades on refugee law. And so we set about finding what it was that we could do that would make the most difference that we could achieve and that we could get agreement from the entire ALP and the crossbench, both in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And so we consulted with experts and we established what became a highly unconventional process of negotiated, negotiating and writing this legislation. And uh, the, the detail of that will have to be a story for another occasion. But when I was talking to Jane outside just now, uh, Jane was one of the people, one of the lawyers who was on the other end of the phone as our group of advocates who basically set up camp in my office for the, the weeks that we were trying to formulate this legislation in its various iterations from a private member's bill to an amendment in the Senate to an amended amendment in the House of Representatives. And, uh, and you know, it was a fascinating and, and quite extraordinary process. And, and to think that there were, were people like Jane who were on the other end of the phone volunteering their time for these refugee organisations and advocates, and for us as, at the time, uh, legislators, in a very unusual situation was quite an extraordinary time to be in Australian politics. And so when it went to the Senate and then in the House of Representatives, the legislation was passed by one vote in each house. And I thought it was the first glimmer of policy news that was good news on refugee policy in decades. And now with senior members of the new parliament saying that one of their top priorities is to repeal the Medivac legislation. This is a decision in search of an excuse. The excuses range from the bizarre to the offensive, but they all amount to a concerted campaign of misinformation. It started with denying that there was any kind of healthcare crisis on Manus Island and Nauru, and I was shown glittering photos of the new clinic and its facilities on Manus Island and Nauru. But of course then, we understood the story of there's no point having a clinic there unless you actually have the health professionals to deliver the services. There was the defamation of refugees, calling them rapists, murderers and pedophiles, to make Australians scared of these people being rescued to come to Australia for the health care that they needed. There was a claim that Medivac would dismantle border protection, would overwhelm our hospitals, would flood social housing. All of these claims, of course, completely unsubstantiated. Uh, they announced the urgent need to open Christmas Island, despite there being no appropriate medical services there. They announced an alleged boat arrival on Christmas Island, despite there being no appropriate uh, 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 confirmation that anyone on Christmas Island had actually seen a boat or any asylum seekers arrive there. And then closing Christmas Island after wasting $185 million of taxpayers' money. And then the shameful episode <clears throat> of a senior minister of our government questioning a woman's rape story. Bad character allegations were being made without actually even defining what bad character meant. I could go on, but you get the message. You can understand why the Australian people, well-intentioned or not, became very confused and continue to be confused. 
And this campaign has been sadly and shamefully aided and abetted by elements of the mainstream media who simply publish these claims without checking their veracity, without checking that it's actually true. There was a time when a politician who deliberately misled the Australian public was a cause for censure, demotion or dismissal. Misinformation, though, has become political currency. We must simply not accept that we live in a post-truth political world. The only defence we have against misinformation is accurate, evidence-based, credible information. And this is the importance of this book, Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs. It's useful for discussions from legal or political arguments to accurate media reporting, from a better informed water cooler discussion and dinner party discussions. The book clears up the confusion around issues like international and Australian refugee law. It debunks common myths. It talks about the truth about mandatory detention, offshore processing, boat turnbacks and regional protection. I'd like to congratulate the authors, Professor Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong and UNSW Press for their work on this book. As the authors say, people will continue to seek protection for as long as the root causes of displacement remain unresolved. This is a long-term challenge that will remain while there is oppression and discrimination in the world. The challenge for Australians is to live up to our aspiration to be seen as good people, well-intentioned people, by informing ourselves as much as possible about our international obligations and responsibilities so that we can all engage in the policy debate as informed citizens, citizens informed by facts. I'm honoured to officially launch Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs. Congratulations. Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs provides a clear explanation of Australia's refugee policies and how they fall short of Australia's international obligations. It comes five years after the earlier book, Refugees, Why Seeking Asylum is Legal and Australia's Policies Are Not, by the same authors. Jane McAdam is Scientia Professor of Law and Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. Fiona Chong is a lawyer and a recent International Human Rights Fellow in Columbia University's Graduate Law Program. Professor Jane McAdam. For 50 years, Australia showed global leadership when it came to the protection of refugees. But in the past 25 years, we've lost our way. Successive governments have redoubled policies of deterrence and deflection while dehumanising and abstracting the people in search of and in need of our protection. It's worth bearing in mind that at the end of the Second World War, Australia took in 170,000 displaced people from the camps of Europe. In fact, between 1949 and 1950, 48% of Australia's annual migration intake was comprised of refugees and displaced people. Today, it's less than 10%. In the 1970s, boat people fleeing Vietnam were welcomed in Darwin Harbour. They were processed fairly, treated humanely and given protection with Prime Minister Fraser explaining to, initially, to an initially wary public that this was what they deserved. In the 1980s, following the horrors of Tiananmen Square, 
Prime Minister Hawke announced that more than 40,000 Chinese students then in Australia would be permitted to stay, something he described as an instinctive act of leadership. But by the 1990s, Australian governments, both Labor and Liberal, began to harden our approach, introducing indefinite and mandatory detention, temporary protection and quotas. These policies resulted in families being separated, in significant mental health problems, and ultimately affected whether or not pe people could find lasting protection and safety. By the 2000s, an already draconian approach was augmented by offshore processing, boat interceptions and turnbacks, curtailed rights of appeal and cuts to legal assistance. As one scholar has put it, deterrence has become a polite term for the idea that some migrants must suffer to prevent others from seeking remedies. These practices are not only at odds with so-called Australian values of fairness and decency, but many of them squarely violate Australia's international legal obligations. And they all undermine a sustainable, humane response to refugees globally. A successful refugee policy not only manages national borders, it also protects people who need safety. This year, once again, there are record numbers of displaced people. In fact, 20 million more than there were five years ago when we wrote the first version of this book. <coughs> These are children, men and women with rights and with needs, as well as hopes and dreams. But while the numbers are large, they are also manageable. The UN Refugee Agency says that around one and a half million refugees need to be resettled this year. Putting this into perspective, this is less than half a percent of the population of the United States alone. With true international solidarity and commitment, the world could resettle them in a heartbeat. We wrote this book because we were concerned about the misinformation being peddled by political leaders and certain elements of the media, which was feeding into public sentiment and creating disquiet and insecurity about refugees and people seeking asylum. Reflecting back over the past five years, when, we've, when we wrote that book called Refugees, Why Seeking Asylum is Legal and Australia's Policies Are Not, we were surprised to see just how the discourse in Australia had shifted and become even more pernicious, not least because the abstraction, dehumanisation and ill-treatment of people had become so normalised. And while some people among us have been deeply affected and mobilised by reports coming out of Nauru and Manus Island, many others remain indifferent. And that indifference is perhaps most concerning of all, because if you don't care, then it's very hard to be moved either way. The vast majority of people who come to Australia by boat are found to be refugees, people who have a well-founded fear of persecution or who otherwise face a real risk of significant harm in their homelands, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria and beyond. 
But even to talk about them as refugees is an abstraction, a label that doesn't really do justice <clears throat> to their full weight and solidity as individual human beings, people with rich and complex lives, people who've demonstrated courage and resilience, people who've experienced more adversity than perhaps most of us can imagine. Yet in the name of deterrence, successive governments have used these people as a means to an end, have deliberately subjected them to harm in order to set an example to others. Throughout our book, we seek to highlight the human impact of Australia's current practices. Right now, there are more than, nine, more than 800 people on Nauru and Manus Island. They've been there for upwards of five years without any clear end in sight. Over 80% of people suffer from depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Health experts say that the levels of trauma offshore exceed those in war zones and disaster zones around the world. And 12 people have, a di have died offshore on Australia's watch. Australia's policies of deterrence are indefensible, especially at a time when there are more people in need of protection globally than at any time since the Second World War. They violate Australia's obligations under international law. They do nothing to address the underlying conditions that lead people to take boat journeys in the first place, namely persecution and human rights violations at home and the lack of alternative pathways to safety. Australia has simply pushed the problem away, out of sight and out of mind. Australia's current practices not only exact a significant human cost, but they are irrational from an economic perspective, costing billions of dollars a year. In 2017, Australia gave $21.5 million to UNHCR's global operations to protect refugees which was less than 5% of what Australia spent that year on offshore processing alone. Earlier this year, it was reported that a security company was being paid more than $20 million a month to oversee just 422 people seeking asylum on Manus Island. And Australia's resettlement deal with Cambodia cost $55 million and yet only seven refugees took the offer to be resettled there and only three refugees now remain there. How can such expense be tolerated? This is where the abstraction of people comes full circle. Our policies may seem justified if the people seeking asylum on our shores are in our minds not really people, but the negative labels that we've reduced them to. Queue jumpers, illegals, security threats. As we explain in our book, these labels are based on assumptions about people seeking asylum that are simply not based on evidence. In our book, we argue that a radically different approach is possible, an approach that is evidence-based and consistent with Australia's obligations under international law. Australia is one of the world's most harmonious, multicultural and socially mobile countries. We have the capacity to accommodate and celebrate diversity and to be generous towards those who seek our protection. Last month, the Caldor Centre released its Principles for Australian Refugee Policy. 
David Gonski, who launched the principles for us, said, I love the fact that as I read through the principles, there are good arguments for each one. So now if people don't agree, and they are entitled to do that, they have to bring some science, some thinking, some intellect to actually say this is wrong. But far too often, those in positions of power fall back on emotional and inaccurate narratives or resort to personal attacks on those putting forward a different view, rather than trying to prosecute a reasoned or rational argument. The transparency and accountability that good public policy demands are very thin on the ground, and quite deliberately so. We're reminded of the South African Supreme Court of Appeals admonishment that the frustration experienced by authorities when they deal with a burgeoning asylum seeker and refugee population, which I must add is not the case here, must not blind them to their international obligations. It must especially not be allowed to diminish their humanity. The authorities must also guard against unwittingly fueling xenophobia. In an address last week, the Shadow Minister, Andrew, Andrew Giles, acknowledged that here in Australia, political noise, and I quote, had crowded out both a reasoned and reasonable exchange of ideas on refugee issues and the voices of those whose lives are directly affected by the policy choices we make. We have to change this, he said. We have to give Australia's hopeful side a fair chance to prevail over the politics of fear and division. Above all, he stressed that we had to start by remembering that this is about people's lives. And I realise I just promoted him to Shadow Minister. <laughs> we couldn't agree more with these sentiments. And we hope that by bringing facts to bear on this highly politicised debate, our book will go some way towards helping to realise an alternative vision. <laughs>